1: Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details.
2: Hello, you have found Forum, episode 14 of Forum, Nature Biotechnology's podcast where we speak with leading researchers in the field about their work, recent publications, or just general topics of interest. And today, I'm with senior editor Barb Shafey. She ran this roundtable. And I think the first question, Barb, is why we chose this topic for this episode of Forum.
3: So I chose this topic because we're taught a very simplistic view of how genes are located within the nucleus and how they're expressed and how this relates to the function of a cell. And over the last few years, we've uncovered, really, that the organization of the nucleus is far from simplistic. Uh, As more methods are being developed, we're getting more insight into the layers of organization that occur in the nucleus, and and we're really getting to explore this systematically using these new technologies down to the single cell level. So we're now able to approach this question from all different angles, uh, sequencing, imaging, and seeing how all of the results fit together in kind of a new picture of how genes fold and how chromatin interacts and how this relates to function.
2: And then how did you decide which guests to have?
3: So these two women that I'm speaking with today um, have been pioneers in this field, both on the computational side and the imaging side, to look at different aspects of chromatin folding. And they've both been involved in the 40 Nucleome consortium project, which is now reaching its fifth year.
2: Hmm. And who are they?
3: Uh, my first guest is Anna Pombo, and she's from the Max Delbruck Center for Molecular Medicine in Berlin. And she was a pioneer in the field uh, developing the genome architecture mapping, uh, GAM technology uh, to map the 3D genome structures.
2: And the second guest?
3: My second guest is Jennifer Phillips-Cremens, and she's at the University of Pennsylvania. And she works to develop molecular and computational technologies also to look at how genomes fold at high resolution and how this is really directly related to cellular function.
2: So I'm assuming that they are aware of each other's work?
3: Yes. They, so they both are members of the 4D Genome Consortium. They frequent a lot of the same conferences they've met personally, and it was a pleasure to speak with both of them together.
2: Okay. I think that's all we need. So here it is, episode 14 of Forum.
3: And thank you both for joining me here today on the forum podcast. I'm really excited to speak today about what is known as the 3D genome, or basically how our long linear chromosomes are compacted and organized inside the nucleus of the cell in 3D space. So to get us started, I thought it would be good to go back several years. Can you tell us a little bit about the history of the study of the 3D genome and
0: how we started looking at this? Okay so I think this one is for me. Uh so um when I started uh in the field the genome was not yet sequenced. Uh and uh, um we could mostly see uh how it was organized with microscopes. And so through the work of uh, uh, Christoph and Thomas Kramer and others it was possible to essentially isolate chromosomes and to make probes uh need translation this is really uh, many years uh, and these uh, revealed v- very interesting patterns and we could start to see that uh, chromosomes are not like spaghetti in a bowl uh, and occupy territories and from there on it was uh, human curiosity uh, leading us to to see if there were patterns if uh, there was a relationship with the cell type and the more uh, we looked uh, chromosomes, genes um, in different cells, it became apparent that there was some interesting patterns relating uh, with the function of the cells, with the development stage of the cell, even with the disease state of the cell. But there was a huge, huge but that still is with us today. Uh, these patterns are not simple. Uh, they more like uh, patterns you might see in ecology or in the social sciences.
3: Jen, how did you get into this line of work? Yeah, so,
4: you know, I got into the field as a complete outsider. I was getting my PhD in bioengineering and um, working really on regenerative medicine and trans differentiation of fibroblasts into bone phenotypes to create tissue. And at the end of that work, we could successfully create 3D engineered organs in the lab. And yet the idea that cells could completely switch fate, um, you know, remained almost like a, a, great mystery of how this was, was done. And at the time, uh, as Anna, there was no sequencing yet but I was drawn to the nucleus and how it could be possible that the genetic sequence had remained the same. And yet these cells that had already committed to some other lineage could be in my hands, completely transformed to something else. And so that brought me to chromatin and epigenetics. And I took what would be called a massive risk and, um, jumped away from mammalian bioengineering. And I joined a fly lab of Victor courses to work on chromatin and epigenetics and to do basic science research. So at the time, um, the 3D genome, so sequencing wasn't even available yet. And the, the leading technology in the field w- was conducted by people like Peter Frazier and Wendy Bickmore and Tom Mastelli. And they were using pairwise DNA fish probes to image a couple of dots in the nucleus and to ask, do they co-localize yes or no um, at specific locations in the genome, determined a priori, and this was through imaging. And I think that um, as an engineering and analytical person, it was a bit uncomfortable that uh, many, many models would be built on those single dots in the nucleus. It turns out many of those models were outright correct. (laughs) It's amazing that they could could come to fruition from single dots, but I was craving a full genome-wide view and craving putting numbers to these observations in a way that was quantitative. And um, sequencing had just hit basically about six months into my postdoc. I remember where I was sitting when I saw the first studies out of the Broad uh, by Brad Bernstein doing ChIP-Seq, using genome-wide sequencing, and it was so exciting. And So I will say that the big turning point was I went to a Keystone conference. Many, many presentations there were talking about ChIP-Seq for histones, as well as DNA methylation. I remember Alex Meisner's talk, and um, I was thinking in my mind, I really wanted to do something different than this. This seemed like the linear epigenome, and there are many, many people working on this, but I wanted to go to an area where the technology wasn't ready yet, but numbers could really be important. And the 3D genome, I think, at that conference is what I had decided to work on. The thing was that Hi C had not been published yet. Um, but I, I wonder Anna's perspective on this as the sequencing uh, <laughs> began to take hold. Uh, what was your experience?
0: I was, you know, in the same category as a uh, first part of the work in my lab and as a um, PhD student and postdoc was really to use in situ hybridization and we came to a realization in a a manuscript where we wanted to see how extensively the different uh, chromosomes mix with each other how much do they intermingle we essentially if you wanted to map all of them you'd need to do 225 experiments if my numbers are still correct and we thought, well, we cannot do 225 in situ experiments, but maybe let's do 10 percent. Um, and then we had to choose 10 percent in an educated manner, so we chose a, a range of translocation frequencies, uh, and that allowed us to, for example, find the correlation between the mixing of chromosomes and how much they translocated. So these were the kinds of challenges that we were facing, but that's uh, Particularly, manuscript in um, plus biology with miguel branco as my co first author told us that there were patterns but and you would see beautiful things coming together exactly like jen mentioned but you wouldn't know where the specificity was so we might see a chromosome a 9 mix a lot with 11 And these patterns were beautiful on the microscope, but we wouldn't know if that was like pushed by something else that was more specific than them uh, or not. And so at that moment, uh, I more or less stopped thinking of any projects with in situ hybridization. I, I still had a few more papers after that, but these were things that were going on. And we thought we really need to do all parts of the genome at the same time. And from that full data, extract what are the most specific, the most special uh, patterns, whatever they might be, contacts or some other feature of topology, and let that uh, preferential behaviors guide what we work on next. Yeah,
3: I definitely want to get into a little bit of the advances and the methods that have been developed since then, because I think this is an area that has really taken off and enabled us to find all of these new layers of organization of the nucleus. Um, So when we're talking about the 3D genome, we're talking about, you know, the organization and positioning of the genes within the chromosome, how they contact each other, how they're open or active um, or closed and inactive. And we're also talking about how these chromosomes are arranged within the nucleus itself, uh, the compartmentalization and folding uh, within that 3D space of the nucleus. So There are a number of methods looking at each of these facets, both sequencing-based and imaging-based, as you guys have alluded to here. Can you talk just a bit about the different sequencing-based methods to start uh, that exist for looking at
4: the 3D genome? Yeah, so I'm happy to do that. I would say that a tremendous amount of progress has been made in, in maybe the last 10, 12, 13 years or so. And broadly speaking, looking back now, you could probably subdivide among two areas. The first would be protein independent technologies that, as Anna has already stated, look across every possible contact. The other side would be those that are protein dependent and they start with every possible contact, but then they ask, um now i only want to take the subset and the subset would be those that are mediated by a certain protein for example a putative architectural protein like cdcf or even a um, histone mark that's thought to mark distal enhancers such as k27 acetyl and so it would start from a search space of billions of contacts and then pull down only those that would have perhaps a protein anchor point or a histone anchor point and only look at that subset. And the reason why there's a so-called technical market for both of those options is that indeed, if you do all of the contacts of which they are billions and billions, it takes quite a bit of sequencing depth. The library complexity is so vast compared to something like um, a linear chromatin mark or RNA-seq that you just need a lot more sampling and a richness of uh, data in order to get the complexity of the features that are underlying that space. And so it's just extremely expensive. And even to this day, to get you know 500 base pair resolution genome-wide maps with sequencing, you're paying per replicate somewhere between 10 and $30,000, so it's not a small endeavor by any means and then of course all the data and the processing so a way to circumvent that to do many many samples is to re- restrict your hypothesis to a, a smaller search space either a protein that mediates the contacts or there are so-called hybrid capture methods that use probes to say i see the billions of interactions but i'm just going to take like a megabase of the genome and there's a step where you use probes and then you pull down that section of the genome and then look only at that section, and that also saves quite a bit of money. The reason um, beyond finances that would argue for using some of these hybrid capture approaches is that oftentimes biologists are now in the stage of extensive perturbations, and you do not if you're doing a perturbation at one gene or one enhancer, you don't want to burn all of those reads and all of that processing on every possible contact across the genome, and so it is actually quite um, smart to restrict the search space to look at 3D genome folding only around the particular perturbation that you make.
0: If I may add to that, so there is one uh, other, uh, other ways to prioritize. So when, as we said earlier in, in this conversation, one of the big challenges is where to start. Uh, and Jen alluded to a number of ways to focus your search. Another one, and this is something we uh, use deeply in, in, in my lab and in, in other labs, is that you can also f- use methods that allow you to discover what are the most frequent contacts, for example, what are the strongest, more, most, more unexpected contacts in a given cell type, or if you're comparing two treatments, uh, to focus on what are the most different contacts. But, you know, the common thread to to this is that we need to prioritize because the search space is so massive that if we don't, we might just end up uh, describing very superficial aspects of the topology and not perhaps the ones that matter the most.
3: Yeah, that makes sense. And what about the the super resolution microscopy methods to see genome folding and how do those
4: fit into this? Yeah, so this has been extremely exciting. I think... Um, so once the technology the technology went through many iterations from about 2009 to about 2016 or so, and the computation was advancing as well to the point where the so-called high c or Chia-Pet type paradigms or even the hybrid capture technologies such as Capture-C or 5C, they got to the point where the data was very high quality, which took many iterations. And the computational approaches had to get there to actually detect the features. But then the major limitation was these are ensemble maps that require somewhere between 500,000 upwards of 50 million cells just to generate the maps. So then there came this urgency and also importance of, we need to see this in single cells and we need to know how the genome folds in single cells and several technologies have. Emerge to address that. I'd like to shout out Anna because she was um, one of the very first and developed GAM, which I know she will, will talk about a, a bit later. And that allows the query of folding within single cells and also in situ, which is extremely powerful. Now, that's a sequencing ba- based technology. Anna might be cooking up some <laughs> non sequencing based ideas. Um, the other one is this notion of single cell high C. It is very limited in that case, and the reason is that um, it's very difficult in a single-cell high-C map because the nature of the technology to really sample the whole genome and to see especially subtads and loops. You can see maybe large-scale compartments and uh, territories, but it's very difficult to see loops in particular with single-cell high-C. Technology may improve, but at the current time, that is a challenge. But in comes another technique, which is back to imaging. And for me, it has been um, very exciting, I think, to come from the beginning of when I started in the field, when imaging was the dominant force and it was pairwise, single dots, to now this new iteration um, pioneered by Ting Wu, Zhao Weizheng, and then subsequently by many others, Bintu, Alistair Bedecker, Long Chai, and, and others. And together, the idea is we're still going to use DNA fish probes, but instead of just two, now we can do it in a high throughput way in the whole genome, or similarly walking and stepping uh, bin by bin across the genome, still using imaging, either wide field or super resolution, but the end result is you actually do get single cell maps of TADs and loops and compartments as well, but now they're single cell. But it goes back to imaging in DNA fish, however, quite a few advances in um, just sort of like probe design and microfluidics hardware and software were needed to get us to that point. So the advances, now we can see 3D genome folding in single cells, and again, that's really important because we want to relate the 3D genome to function, and it's very difficult to do that without the single cell uh, result. And then also, I will say where Anna has really been ahead of the field is then having those single cell maps in situ, with the cells in their native tissue, which is I think the wave of the future and something that also remains extremely important.
0: I think one also amazing advantage, right, of the imaging is that you can have the multimodality embedded, based on all the you know work we we and others did. Um, many years ago to combine the protein detection with the RNA detection and really doing the direct single cell correlations that will bring us closer to the to the cause effect so we can see a loop and we can tell if this happens in the cell that doesn't transcribe or in the cell that transcribes the gene for example uh, without us correlating the loop and the transcription occurring in the same system when they might not be actually occurring at the same time so this is immensely exciting. So, yeah. yeah, it
3: seems like all of these methods are fitting in from different angles. They all take different approaches with based on different principles. Are you seeing a lot of agreement in all the results or are there discrepancies that are coming up from using these different methods?
0: Uh, if you look at it like from the, from the sky and you are an alien, I think you see a lot of agreement. I think the disagreement comes and I'm not sure if I'm supposed to say this in a podcast or not (laughs) but comes from really uh, each of us having some uh, preferred ideas uh, and trying to push a result more into one uh, position or another and so one example of this is um, whether I don't know uh, um, back to my own field you know do genes Are they transcribed together or not together? Uh, Do genes decondense when they transcribe or not transcribe? And if we look carefully in the literature, both the prior IC and the post IC, we have examples of of the two phenomena. If you if you were to ask me maybe later, uh, what is the the challenge for the field is really to accept uh, that uh, it, it is immensely diverse the types of structures they form and that you if each of us tries to boil it down to whatever is our favorite mechanism this is not going to work so then you start into discussions you know i do this gene in this cell type and i see that i don't know the ns and the promoter are not together but then i do another cell and another gene another ns and then they are together and you could spend millions of dollars going over this when actually probably both are correct it just it's in different systems. So I, I, if I may have a wish, it, it, it would really just for us to accept that this is a beautiful problem. And uh, like in other disciplines, to perhaps work together to just collect the different ways topology and 3D structure can have an impact on what the cell is doing, what the cell is, what's going to be, uh, and just have a more integrative big picture for the future Um having been on the field for for now i think it's 30 years doing active research it, it's just not interesting anymore to even see these disagreements it's fairly tedious mm. uh, <laughs> so, so i i just wish if i might take this platform to to say this that we could maybe have a, a bigger consortium where we collect the differences we uh, embrace them we study them and we not try to go back and forth through editorial processes uh, about uh, whether I believe in the result or not.
4: Yeah, absolutely. So I I agree with Anna. and um, from a big picture in terms of features, I think there is in large part field agreement of the complexity of features and, and what they look like structurally. We're talking about territories, compartments, tads, subtads, and so-called dots, which are manifest as loops. These are now, I think, in in, in large part accepted phenomenon structurally. However, there's quite a bit of banter about the definition, <laughs> the actual syntax of what do we call them. And, and I have to say, a lot of that seems to be more about who found them first and less about what Anna calls the, the alien looking from above who would say, yes, these things exist. And so it's more discussion of semantics of what their definition is. But the actual fair part is that there is disagreement in terms of, should they be named by their mechanism, by their structural feature, by their single cell properties or dynamics? or by their function, (laughs) and there is great disagreement in that. And the reason is that we don't have all that figured out yet. It's very, very exciting, actually. What we do know is that early on, there wasn't enough knowledge to know these distinct features exist. So perturbations would cloud or conflate the different structures and then make a conclusion based on mechanism or function. But now we know that every layer of folding has a very different mechanism may look very different in imaging as well as genomics assays, and then also has a very different function depending on which structure you're looking at and where you're looking in the genome. So I think it's just like the definitions are ongoing, and it's actually the magic of the discovery that all of this is going to unfold, but I think it is true that these features exist. So let me give um, one example, genome structure function. There is a very high interest in this right now. It is the question going forward in the field because we have elucidated many of these beautiful structures, but figuring out their functional role is almost like justifying (laughs) their existence. Why are they there? What are they doing in life, in biology? And I think all of us think that this is very important to figure out. So there was a paper early on in our field that in a cell line with short-term knockdown took away a protein that is known to facilitate many of these so-called loops or dots and took it away, perhaps six, anywhere from six to 24 hours and showed that most of the dots go away. So the natural question is great. This is a great system to say what happens to transcription. And then looking at transcription, almost none of the genes changed. And then, you know, dropped this very important paper. Loops don't matter for gene expression <laughs> conclusion. And you know that has caused a lot of questions. And I will say the result was, was real, but it's, it was just too narrow in its perspective. So going forward now, what we know is that those cells were just in maintenance mode. But Matthias Merkenschlager went on in a recent paper in Nature Immunology to also take away that protein. It was a co- uh, uh, factor. Not take away loops, but then ask the cells to change fate. And it's in the establishment of new transcriptional programs that the loops were really needed, and there was vast disruption in gene expression. So just that nuance of maintenance versus establishment. Also, we know that in real-life perturbations in biology, these are not short-term. They actually go on for quite some time, for example, in disease. and. There were other papers taking away loops that show that if you disrupt those loops for longer time frames, there there's severe consequences for gene expression. And then there's been a series of papers across diseases of limb development, cancer, as well as our own work in neurological disease that show unequivocally that disruption of the 3D genome matters for gene expression. So I think it's like this, this ongoing thing that has taken hold that all of these structures don't matter for function when in fact, the field just needed time to do the perturbations properly and to get the disease model system sorted out. And in my mind, there's no question that um, structure matters for function. It's just a matter of how nuanced and and how complex it really is.
0: Um, I I would just, if if I might go back a little bit, uh, I think you summarized the features that came up uh, out of the sequencing methods. But I think, and this is something I, I wish we could do a little bit better. There were also features that came up from imaging studies that we are yet to acknowledge by some of the sequencing methods. And this is, for example, MHC2 looping out of territories when you activate a cell or even puffs, right, of, of genes becoming, uh, when they're very active or one very Interesting result is that you can have very similar maps from or IC maps from cells that have very different volumes, and so you know what what does it mean in terms of 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 distance and so on. And I, I think also in this area there's there's some some work to be done, right, to consolidate not only to find in the imaging what did the meaning of the genomic features were, but conversely to dig deeper into the genomics and see if we can also consolidate some of these results, many of which, by the way, uh, were relating with gene expression.
3: Yeah, I was actually wondering about this too. So just building on what you've both been saying, do we really understand how the changes in the 3D organization can relate to other mechanisms of gene regulation
0: and gene expression? Can you talk a bit about that? So so in a... In a In a recent manuscript that we published where we looked at uh, topology in in terminally differentiated cells in the brain, one of the things we really tried to do very strongly was to to show the different ways in which this relationship between structure and function can occur. And so some genes, if they are immensely active, you might see them completely decondensing. Uh, Irina Solovey has also shown this recently uh, in different terminally differentiated cells by imaging. But in the same system, in the same brain cells, you can see a short gene like EGR1 become more contacting, more within a, a tad when it's more highly expressed. So the main conclusion of this study, and I think all the studies, to be honest, is that the relationship between structure and function depends on the gene, on its genomic context, on the cell type, and even the same gene might be regulated and they have different relationships with function and structure in different contexts. Again, back to the alien from the top of the sky, if you look down at this, these are just different ways uh, a system responds depending on, on the environment, on the conditions, which is true in so many similar complex disciplines, as I say, like social sciences or uh, neurosciences. If you think at the higher level, you have synapses and so on. So uh, why are we looking for reducing what is a beautiful problem to just one mechanism? And so, it, it to me, it's it's uh, not not even useful. It's not 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 particularly interesting. So. What I can say is wherever we look, uh, we found in this particular study, but you can say this of many other studies, wherever we look, there's a relationship between the change in topology or the cell type specificity of the topology. And this could be seen at the tad borders, at the compartment changes, at the loops, at this uh, melting of all of, uh, genes. What was interesting that this was very cell type specific. So the genes that were Present in these changes were relevant for the cell type of interest, but it was not one result. It was not when a gene is active, it forms a hub or a, a, of a transcription factory. It's not when it's active, it decondenses. We found the two events in the same cells at the same time for different genes.
3: Yeah, it's interesting. And then we you know everything these days is moving to single cell level, and so as we're looking at these organ, this organization in single cells, what is this adding to what we know about gene regulation? So if I, if I may start uh, here, um,
0: so essentially one, one of the aspects is the frequency of the event. And so when you see a contact, does it exist in a given method? Uh, does it mean that it's existing in 1% of the cells or 50% of the cells? And if it's 1% of the cells, you immediately, and let's say the gene is active 50, you already know that this contact is not happening at at the same time as the transcription. It could happen before, after, during. So the the single cell can really give us uh, an understanding of the actual frequency of the event. And if we have the single cell information with uh, the parallel uh, metrics of uh transcription or protein abundancy or uh, maybe a, a morphological feature we can start to have these very direct cause effect relationships that we really need i think to to move the field
4: yeah i can add to that just um more recent single cell studies and i'll highlight work of luca Giorgetti that has just come out as well as alistair bedeker and and many others, so I apologize to all those that I'm missing listing their names, but many important things have emerged. So first and foremost, recent work has shown with single cells that the enhancer promoter distance matters for the level of the gene expression response. So the closer the enhancer is to the promoter in a looping event, the the more robust the transcriptional response. And then using modeling, the other key lesson is that enhancer-promoter interactions seem to govern more so burst frequency, which resonates with me, I think, because of Matthias's result that I already shared, that it appears that enhancer cohesive mediated and enhancer-promoter loops are really important for the establishment of new gene expression programs and perhaps less so for simply the maintenance of things that are still ongoing. So all of those things seem to be gelling into this possibility of that enhancer promoter loops are very dynamic, and that they're also governing the establishment and the burst frequency of sort of new um, transcriptional programs. And those are just lessons. So as I said before, and, and Ana has rightfully said, there's so many other mechanisms also going on at the same time. And I'm just using these as case studies. And I'm not even bringing up TAD boundaries, compartments, nuclear bodies, uh, trans interactions, there's so many other things going on all at the same time, gene-gene contacts. But those could be case studies in and of themselves with totally different lessons. What I think I personally would like to take away is that unequivocally, structure matters for function. And it just because we haven't fully figured it out yet doesn't mean it doesn't matter. It's just like this great fun mystery of uh, work yet to be done. And are there
3: specific challenges with bringing this to look at in single cells?
4: It was technology, but the technology is there now. I would say technology accessibility beyond 10 labs would be, because these are very sophisticated, both molecular as well as hardware and software, but then also computational to glean the information. So it takes people that have devoted their lives work to these technologies. But what would you say, Anna? are we poised now with all the technologies having been developed to to make big strides with discovery, or do you think more technology-
0: No, not at all, not at all. I think we're just scratching the surface still, to be honest. Uh, so, you know, the same way you mentioned earlier that for the contact mapping, we went from mapping everything and then not having a lot of depth to then wanting to prioritize some contacts uh, to have uh, higher knowledge, I think one main challenge in the single cell methods is that they many of them are unbiased. So, if you want to study dopaminergic neurons in the midbrain, you'll need to get uh, to sequence a lot of cells before you get. You know, you'll waste ninety percent of your money on the cells you're not wanting to study. So there are issues in terms of also prioritizing cells of interest in the system of interest. At you know the same problem but now at another scale uh, and so I think at least that's certainly the strategy in my lab is really to invest on merging the technologies and allowing to have the multi-parameter collection from the same cell so we can map the sequence of the patient or even the sequence of that cell type uh, we can then get the topology get the protein concentration the RNA dynamics and do this maybe in specialized systems to try to learn more lessons but so i think in s- uh, some other methods so the imaging of course can do this as well can focus its attention on cells of interest uh for the um some other techniques you, you there's the issue also with a single cell i see in particular how do you prioritize in a complex tissue the cells of interest but i think this doesn't sound terribly complicated someone will figure this out uh, if they really want to so but i think there will be more innovation uh, merging these things and then learning to prioritize and eventually i think the more future challenge would be to make use of all this information so how do we go from all these different multi-omic techniques uh, into creating a real uh, affordable, fast diagnostic test for a given disease, how do we melt, boil it all down into one single measurement that is accessible? And I think that will be another set of challenges.
3: So you mentioned diagnostic tests as one possible practical application for this type of work. Are there other uh, applications for this work in patient samples, drug targets, or disease markers? What? Do you think are the most practical
4: uses? So the word you use is practical, and I would say this would not be practical, but it would be extremely useful. And perhaps even paradigm shifting, although you might say that's a cringe (laughs) phrase, but indeed, by bringing the structural uh, perspective to human disease, I believe it really has transformed how even clinicians look at disease onset. And I can give one example from our group, but there are many others. So even before I share maybe our work, I'll say Stefan Munlos very early on uh, reported, almost like stunning in its elegance, this idea that various um, copy number variations that are causal for diseases of limb development also have intricate connection to disruption of TAD boundaries. And that takes right away a way of looking at the world in terms of how to cure a disease to okay there's a severe 3d genome component now where these copy number variants are not just flipping they're actually changing the whole structure of the genome and so i would say that that is classic work now of, of changing the way we think about human disease in our um, own more recent work something that has 3D genome has brought about a a transformation in how we think about disease would be in fragile X syndrome. So this is a monogenic disorder that in the textbook is written as um, it's driven by a singular short tandem repeat expansion event on the X chromosome. And what we have gone on to find is that there is severe upwards of 20 megabase regions of the genome, both on the X chromosome as well as autosomes where the 3D genome is completely destroyed, there's very large heterochromatin domains, and then there are these trans interactions that uh, we call breaches, beacons of repeat expansion, uh, attenuated by contacting heterochromatin, and the trans interactions are coming together out of their territories into this subnuclear body with that genome instability event. Well, why has this changed how we think about disease? Because of those trans interactions, we were guided spatially to the locations on autosomes that are also somehow <laughs> becoming completely unfolded. And that helped us look in those locations. And since then, because of those trans interactions, we found genome instability events on autosomes in fragile X, which is thought to be a monogenic disorder. And we would have known where to look without those trans interactions. So not practical, at all <laughs> by any means, but it's sort of a completely different way of looking at disease through p- spatial context.
3: So can you imagine some kind of therapy that directly can change this chromatin confirmation around these silenced genes
4: for any therapeutic purposes? I, I do. Um, we, we were involved in some of this tool development early on. And I think the early tools, um, although exciting, the limitation, I speak my own work is that we weren't going through the mechanism that they form. We were just creating synthetic architectural proteins to bring things together. But if you're going to engineer loops now, um, we know they form by extrusion. So perhaps a synthetic architectural protein will need to form by the same mechanisms as biology uses. In case of trans interactions, all bets are off. And engineering trans interactions would be a very, very exciting intervention. You
0: know... The the power of discovering targets through uh, 3D genome contacts is more, you know, one option of course is I, I, let's try to fix them, but uh, this is probably one very tiny category of uh, all the possible uh, disease associated uh, dysregulation of topology probably very few this will be the strategy just because of the complexity of adding something to correct topology topology to correct to maintain Uh, so but the 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 power of discovering what are the targets through topology is really immensely important in diseases where we have many non-coding variants in the middle of nowhere or sometimes in the middle of the gene they don't affect right for the fto example um and being able to have a genetic variant even in a patient uh uh, even in a single patient to have a deletion and or a rearrangement and trying to know what exactly is this doing going and seeing what is the folding what's the contact and seeing what are the affected genes either in the neighborhood or elsewhere the power of of this is of immense importance for the many clinicians who, you know, get a patient, they have a phenotype, uh, it looks like, I don't know, ALS or, or something or a, a Alzheimer's disease, but uh, you, you don't know what's causing it. So how are we going to advance all these complex diseases? And it's, at, at some point, we exhaust finding coding sequences, we exhaust finding uh, nearby mutations that we can identify the gene, we then need to go to the more complex you know maybe a disease where you have a single snip in the middle of nowhere or many snips everywhere in the genome but you you don't know how they work together uh, and so this is really an area where uh, we're, we're certainly very active and uh, one challenge of course for us uh, uh, I, i'm a biochemist by training i'm not an md or a neuroscientist uh, so it's really to also find the suitable uh, problems in medicine. And so the collaborations with clinicians uh, are immensely important here also to guide, you know, the powers we have now with, with all these methods and guiding them to the correct proof of principles, but the need for a target discovery is immense in, in very uh, difficult diseases where we know there's a genetic component but we can't figure it out. And surely if it could be figured out with a transcriptome, it would have been probably mm-hmm. by now. So it's pretty clear to me, I think where where the a huge discovery space for target development is going to be in the future.
3: Absolutely agree. I think that's a great place to wrap up this discussion. Thank you both for answering all of my questions and sharing your thoughts. Uh, it was really great to speak with you.
0: Thank you, Barbara. This was fun.
4: Yeah, thank you both. This is wonderful.
2: All right. That's it. Episode 14 of Forum is in the books. Thanks to Barb for running this and to both of our guests. We couldn't have done this without you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, search Nature Biotechnology and Forum wherever you get your podcasts and you'll find it. You can subscribe there as well as our sister podcast, First Rounders, and our podcast serial on Stan Crook, anti-sense, and the first drug-approved for spinal muscular atrophy. That's called Hope Lies in Dreams. You can find that as well. If you'd like to find us on Twitter, our handle is at Nature Biotech. You can speak to us there. And yep, that's all of the housekeeping. Thanks for listening. We'll speak to you on the next episode of Forum. Until then.